The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Executives at the Department of Veterans Affairs of Veterans Health Administration are one step closer to bumps in pay. The Senate passed the Competitive Pay for Leaders at Veterans Health Care Act unanimously. GovExec reports the House still has to pass the bill before President Trump could sign it into law. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's draft guidance for trusted Internet Connection 3.0 is open for comment. CIS's tech program manager Sean Connolly calls the new guidance, quote, less prescriptive, more descriptive. GCN reports CISA wants comments by the end of the month. General Services Administration will get rid of some apps and data centers, but that doesn't mean it's cutting spending on IT. Chief Information Officer David Shive says the agency's spending is more efficient, but it won't shrink. FedScoop reports GSA's consolidated about 1,800 applications to 200. The Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy says his department already gets less money than the Navy. He was responding to comments from the new Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday. Gilday said last week the Navy will need more money and a bigger chunk of the Pentagon's budget to build the fleet up to 355 ships. Dub Zakheim is senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. Dove, thanks for coming on the program. You've been in a million of these discussions in the building about how much goes to which and where. Is it as simple as that or is it more complicated than that? In one way, it's as simple as that, and in one way, it's more complicated. The complication is that everybody fights over the money. Mm -hmm. The simplicity is, frankly, if you look at the allocations, it's not exactly one-third, 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 because the Army always gets a little bit less, mm -hmm. and the Navy always gets a little bit more. But it's roughly that. The point, though, is, and, and one of the things that Secretary Esper got at when he was in the Army was, do we need to spend on all of the stuff that's already in the budget, or do we have a good reason to get rid of things and move them up the army in, in the army's case to the big six what, that doesn't seem to have manifested itself yet in this discussion about the budget am i reading that right i think, do you think that's probably right look mark esper did a terrific job when he was secretary of the army with his what he calls his night court mm -hmm. uh, to find some efficiencies to cut he was look trying to get 10 percent um, which is not insignificant when you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars uh, on the other hand, if you look at the so-called Big Six, uh, one of them, the Bradley replacement, is already down the tubes and the Army's starting all over again. Mm -hmm. And the Army's traditionally had a problem with new development. The number of programs that's really cost hundreds of millions, if not billions, and then got canceled mm -hmm. is pretty significant. Um, so yes, uh, you're right, the Army has to fully show how what Secretary Esper did when he was Secretary of the Army plays out. Mm -hmm. um, they never have really gotten more money than the Navy, with one exception, fiscal year 1991, and I'm talking not never, but the last 30 odd years. Mm -hmm. Navy's always gotten more, because it's more capital intensive. The issue that you mentioned with the Army, though, strikes me, that's not a budget problem so much as it is an acquisition problem. No, it affects both, because if you have problems with how you develop and produce, then guys like me who are comptroller will say, well, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> get as much as you wanted. Right. 
what's the what's the solution here? Is the solution to do night court across the department a lot maybe a lot faster than Secretary Esper has proposed or would like to? Or is what's the interim piece to sort out what the Navy gets compared to what the Army gets, given the, the fact that everybody needs? Well, let me first begin with where Admiral Gilday is. Mm -hmm. He's basically saying if Mr. President wants 355 ships by 2030, he needs roughly $7 billion more. Why? Because when his top priority for acquisition is the Columbia-class strategic ballistic missile submarine. Now, if you go back to the Ohio, which is what we have right now, that first ship back in 1981 was about three and three billion dollars in change. The first Columbia ship is going to be seven billion dollars in change. So, we're, we're, and I'm talking about twenty twenty dollars for mm -hmm. both of those. Yes. What that means is, if you build those submarines, and you're talking about an overall Navy budget, but roughly twenty billion, you're not going to have much money for very much else. Mm -hmm. And then you have to build three hundred fifty-five ships. How do you get from here to there and satisfy the president? Mm -hmm. That's his dilemma. He's asking for roughly $7 billion more, I think. So in comes McCarthy and says, well, wait a minute. My people are also going to be in, are in the Pacific and going to be even more in the Pacific. We're already in the Philippines. We're not just in Korea. And so he wants more money. Now, the place to take the money from is not necessarily the Navy. Well, what does that leave? It leaves the Department of the Air Force, and it leaves what is called the Fourth, Fourth Estate, Estate, all these defense agencies, and they get roughly now 16, 17 percent of the budget, give or take. That's where he's got to look, or he gets more money. But he can't get more money because there's a, 21, 21, a 2021 budget deal. Mm -hmm. So the top line's set. That's where the friction is coming from. And McCarthy is basically saying to his former boss, right? He was undersecretary to Secretary Esper. Look, you know what I need. Mm -hmm. Help me find it. Should we expect to see more of this? Should we expect to see the Air Force raise its hand and say, hey, wait a minute, don't forget about us? In well, the I think, coming months? remember, the Air Force is building a new bomber. Right. <laughs> so they're in, in many ways in the same boat, if I can mix my metaphors <laughs> here, uh, as the Navy. Now, the, the Navy's used to come to comptrollers my predecessors, my successors, and say, look, strategic ballistic missile submarines, they're not really a Navy program. They're a national program. So therefore, that money should be extra. It's never washed, didn't wash with me, hasn't washed with anybody who came before me or after me. The Air Force essentially has the same problem. If it's going to build all these bombers, how many F-35s is it going to get? Mm -hmm. But if, if you're going to fund the Army, beyond where the current Army budget is, my guess is it's got to come from either the Air Force or the defense agencies. And therefore, if you look at who's more powerful here, particularly given that the Air Force now also has a Space Corps, that has to get funded. Mm -hmm. So if you're running a defense agency, be prepared. Dove Zakheim, thanks as always. Great to have you. Thank you. Up next, cutting veteran suicide straight ahead on Government Matters, a close look at the capacity and the budget at the Department of Veterans Affairs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Department of Veterans Affairs says it'll double down on suicide prevention efforts for veterans. Deputy Secretary of the VA James Byrne told you yesterday about the programs he has in mind. The VA has $9.4 billion for mental health services in this year's budget. Jeff Eggers is senior advisor at McChrystal Group, former special assistant to the president for national security affairs and a retired Navy SEAL. Jeff, thanks for coming on the program. What's your sense of what the VA will do with the money that they're getting to boost suicide prevention efforts for veterans? Thanks, Francis, and it's great to be with you. Uh, I think the fact that the, the, your opening segment in the VA is focused on mental health is exactly right. Uh, there's no question that we owe veterans um, a focused effort here. Wars have gotten more survivable, but they're not without injury. It's mm -hmm. just that those injuries are harder to see now. Um, and although there's, there's currently about 18 million veterans in the United States, and that number is actually decreasing because of the demographics, but the requirements for care are going up, which is why we've seen a radical increase in the VA budget over the last two decades. Prior to 9-11, the VA's budget was $64 billion. It's 220 this year, a 10% increase. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is a lot of that increase doesn't go to needed programs because the majority of it is in uh, mandatory spending, mm -hmm. not discretionary. Now, to your question on what is the VA going to do with this discretionary spending increase, um, I think they're exactly right to be focused on mental health because among veterans, the number one thing they're reporting when they go into the VA care is post-traumatic stress disorder um, or PTSD, followed very closely by other mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, and so forth. For, so that's exactly the right priority. Um, in terms of where to spend it for the, for the greatest return on investment, right now we know that what is mostly holding veterans back from seeking care is a perception that the quality of care they're going to get in the VA isn't as good as in non-VA systems. And yet recent studies have shown that that's actually not the case and the mm -hmm. quality is quite good. So the focus here is on making sure veterans know about it and they have access to the care. The biggest issue that the VA has run up against and is the same issue that the mental health care system in the private sector has run up against, and that's humans who are able and qualified to provide the care. Is it your sense that the VA has the resources and now will make the effort to be able to attract the talent in to be able to care for these vets in the way that they need to be cared for. Well, that's part of it, making sure that not only you have those resources, but that there's consistency. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the problems with, with what is um, really the largest healthcare system in the United States, and that is the VA, um, is not just making sure you have good quality care, but that it's consistent across the board. But one of the other problems you have is that even with 172 hospitals, um, and service providing locations in the United States, that's still not enough because a lot of these veterans are living in rural areas. So a big part of the strategy is one, uh, filling the gaps where people may not have access to care um, by writing grants down to the local level and really driving community level integration and coordination so that there are fewer gaps. And two is making sure every veteran knows about this. In fact, the VA's implemented something called the Solid Start Program, which is to make sure that everybody transitioning out of the service when they're separating gets a phone call, probably three phone calls in that first year to make sure they know what their eligibility and uh, resources are. I like the way that you're focusing on the outcomes that we desire and not necessarily the outputs that the medical center should provide. They should see this many people or, or whatever. How do you measure the outcomes that you have talked about in this conversation so far? Yeah, that's a great qu question, Francis. We are at the very beginning of understanding how to deal with mental health problems um, like PTSD, TBI, or depression. Um, it's the case now that unfortunately about 20% or one in five 
of our veterans does experience some sort of PTS or TBI mental health condition. And about 50% have um, some sort of friction in their, their family life or frustration in transitioning to civilian service. So mental health is pretty prevalent and yet we don't really uh, understand it. And more importantly, it translates into unfortunately veterans taking their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, still today, 20 veterans a day are taking their life. That's about one and a half times or 150% the rate of suicide in the general population. So we need to do more and it does come back to mental health. One of the things that is happening right now is there's a bill that Congress introduced last year into uh, the legislative record. It's being marked up right now. It's called the Commander John Scott Hannon uh, Mental Health Care Improvement Act. And this is an omnibus bill, but it does um, some very, very important thing. One is it expands um, eligibility in the first year of service, does more on that local and community level integration. But one of the things it does is actually, as, as you uh, point out, is it focuses more on outcomes and advances the research and science around this. Let me give you an example. If you were to go to the doctor today and say, I had a cold or I'm not feeling well, and the doctor prescribed you something just on the basis of you saying, I'm not feeling well, I have a cold, that would be laughable, right? If they didn't take your temperature, if they didn't look down your throat, if they didn't do some lab tests, that's still how psychiatry today works, right? What this bill would do is advance what's called precision therapeutics where you can actually look for biomarkers and you can actually advance the kind of care people get for psychiatric conditions. And the government has done this before in research and development. We've done this everywhere. We've done this with the internet, microwaves, GPS. Why not do it in cognitive and brain health? Mm -hmm. And this bill is going to advance that precision therapeutics. Well, Jeff, thanks very much. The VA has a hotline for people who need some help with this, and we're going to put that on the screen here in a moment. Uh, I thank you very much for coming on the program today. Thank you, Francis, for having me. Up next, what's slowing down the new cybersecurity certification at the Pentagon? Straight ahead on Government Matters, DOD's new timeline for the rulemaking process. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Department of Defense's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification won't be ready when the department thought it would. The office needs to go through a formal rulemaking process, and that could push back the agency's plan to issue the requirements as a proposed rule to the fall. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies. Ron, thanks for coming on the program. You've Delighted. been following this for a long time. What do you see as this starts to develop and starts to slide a little bit? When I first joined CIA as a CT, uh, they put you on a desk, uh -huh. so it gives you some familiarity. So, you know, very proud young man, I come in, I sit at my 1983 tin desk that catches you on the edge of your clothing. <laughs> of course it does. And there were three phones on that desk. There was a red phone, a green phone, and a gray phone. Mm -hmm. One was for TS, another one was for sort of secret, and the other one was sort of outside. And my branch chief at the time, who really didn't want to handle a CT, but had him there, you know, brought me to the desk, sat me down, gave you, threw some papers at me. And I looked at him, I said, w what are these for? He said, he said T.S. says, uh. Yeah. And then I said to him, but, but how do I know? And he said to me, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and 
you know, that's a little bit of what we're doing here yeah. with the CMMC. I, I know why it's, it's China that's pushing the issue. Uh, I also know that, you know, the rules on the cyber side have been fairly, uh, fairly weak. You have NIST who's laid down some rules. And I, and I know that the, from the business standpoint, from the business guys, they'd like to have some rules. They'd like to have some understanding of what it is that they're obliged to do. Mm -hmm. uh, from the government standpoint, I think they'd like to have some idea of you know, who's secure here. Uh, 38,000 contractors, $350 billion worth of purchasing every year. You know what the, the whole drill is. You have two-thirds of the government running through DOD in terms mm -hmm. of purchases. You've got a huge insider threat program now coming out of uh, DSCA. Um, you know, you're trying to match it to some extent. It's pipes and water. The water part has been the insider threat. Now, now we're looking at the pipes. The, the problem on this one, again, is you know, the level of expectation. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw that the reporting, the initial report on this came out of, uh, out of uh, both Carnegie Mellon and Johns Hopkins at APL. Uh, those guys do this kind of thing in other arenas where you grade the capability of management and, uh, and other parts of a company. It's an expensive proposition. I, I got to tell you, I paid for this stuff. Mm -hmm. I paid for the CMM, uh, which is the Carnegie Mellon management one. Uh, you know, if you're a smaller firm, and, and I know they're going to try to avoid one size fits all, but it's going to drift in that direction uh, because you're talking about two, three, four levels down in the, in the supply chain. You know, how far do you want to go on mm -hmm. this? So I'm, I, I know Ellen Lord, uh, as Undersecretary uh, for Acquisition, wishes to push forward on this. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to have some delay, and I, and I bet they are, because they're looking for comment back at this point. And they did a year last year where they went through this commentary. Um, I think they were going to try to gun it through, because uh, they like to get it through at least into FY 2020. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen yeah. now. But I, I, you know, overall, I'm, I'm somewhat not less skeptical of it, and this is going to be an expensive, difficult proposition. Yeah. You mentioned the drift into a one-size-fits-all solution, and the small businesses that deal with the Pentagon especially are concerned about that. What would you like to see the department do to try to avoid that drift or mitigate it to some degree? They're really going to have to matrix this thing out. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading the report, they're talking about, you know, level one, level two, level three, and level four, back to my telephones. You yeah. know, what's sort of adequate? Uh, what, what, what gets to be greater than adequate? What, what is, you know, what's C, B, A? Um, I, I think they're going to have to matrix that out as well for small firms. I think they're going to have to look at how much money you want these firms to put in there. Are you going to assist, insist at the highest level uh, for a small firm? Mm -hmm. For essentially something called controlled yet unclassified information? Yeah. Um, we're having enough problems uh, you know, from the DNI side and from the Secretary of Defense and Intelligence side just dealing with the classified stuff. Yeah. Um, I understand why they're doing it. Uh, you know, in the, in the final analysis, the espionage laws of the United States are very weak. Uh, the CHIMAC issue out in Los Angeles, classic example of a controlled, a classified information, very damaging to us, five years max on the sentence. So I understand why the Pentagon wants to pick up on this, why they want to get some rules in place, but I'll also tell you, as a firm, I'm concerned because now what are my obligations? Mm -hmm. What are my obligations, by the way, if I sell stock to the SEC? and I quote-unquote failed to meet this. I, there's a lot going on here. Again, I understand why they're doing it, but there are a lot of unanswered questions. And I would suggest you a slow rollout with a pilot is probably the best idea. If we try to crash into 38,000 companies on this, and I know that's not all that would be in there, 
So it's less than that. that. That's a lot to ask at one time. It's a lot to ask of the business people at one time. About 30 seconds left, Ron. That's that matrix concept that you talk about. Then I, it strikes me you'd have to triage what information goes into what classifications. Do we wind up with a better product in the end than we have at the beginning? I don't. Th I don't think you do. And I, I think that's <coughs> one of my problems with the entire process. Having gone through that CMM process at Carnegie Mellon and, and all the thousands of people who are now in a position where they're going to do that for you, mm -hmm. uh, it's expensive, it's confusing. I, I don't know what quite you get out of it that is a benefit to, to us in general, frankly. Ron Marks, thanks very much as always. You're welcome, Francis. Thank you. The Census Bureau is counting down to opening day for the 2020 Census. It's been working since the 2010 Census to execute the first highly digital effort in history. The Bureau's changing its data collection instruments and methods to be more efficient, but those changes will also address concerns about the security and confidentiality of census data. Government Matters' Sharice Hanner has more. The Census Bureau debuted its 2020 ad campaign this month. The campaign emphasizes their focus on hard-to-count communities, language barriers, and tech. We can now take the laptops and the cell phones and go directly into those communities. We can go to the soup kitchens. We can go under the overpasses. We can go wherever these hard-to-count populations are with these new technologies. This will be the first year people responding to the census have the option to submit data online, by phone, or by mail. Field agents will use secure apps on iPhones. Apps Associate Director for Field Operations Tim Olson says are completely safe from hacking and other cyber threats. Any of the data that's uh, connected with the, the iPhone instrument, it's all encrypted at rest and once an enumerator uh, completes the work and transmits it, uh, once it lands there it's also encrypted. Uh, so in a, essentially they are going to transmit multiple times a day and once they transmit the data it goes off of the phone. 95% of households will receive census invitations by mail between March 12th and the 20th. For Government Matters, I'm Sharice Hanner. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow, so talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? 
Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps, we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real time. What this means is a small to meet agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community. So a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.